Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the church at Rome. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Slightly strange reading, but hopefully it will eventually make sense where it fits with where we're going this morning. And so we come to God with our prayers of approach. Uh, for the benefit of the visitors, I'm sure the regulars are getting a bit fed up with this little diatribe. Uh, when we get to the Lord's Prayer, we do invite people to say it in whatever their own first language is and whatever version you are familiar with. Uh, but there is a version that appears in English on the screen if you happen not to know it and would like to join in. So let's come to God with our prayers of approach. Let's pray together. We come to you, God of all creation, to offer our thanks and praise. Like the people of long, long ago, the world around us fills us with wonder. We look up into the night sky and see the gleaming moon and the twinkling stars. We feel the warmth of the sunshine on our faces and the cool breeze in our hair. And we realise that since time began... These have been simple human pleasures. We touch a button and television comes alive. The microwave whirs and pings. We click a mouse and connect to the internet or speak to friends on the far side of the planet. And we realise how different our world is from that which our grandparents knew, never mind those long, long ago. You have given us the gift of the earth for our home, this wonderfully diverse, beautiful planet. You have given us the gifts of science and technology, music and art, community and philosophy. And you have given us the freedom to live as we see best. And that is wonderful. And that is scary because sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we don't realise the consequences of our actions until it's too late. Sometimes we make choices that hurt ourselves, each other, or even our planet. And we're sad. And we're sorry. But you, God, never give up on us. In Jesus, you renew, redeem all things, forgive all things, renew all things. We can't understand how it's so, but we dare to trust it's true. And so, aware of our place within and our responsibility for the whole of creation, we join together in the prayer Jesus taught his followers. As we say together, 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Our first reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And the New Testament reading is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5, the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of God. So we're now in the season of Lent. You can tell that because we've got our purple drapes and our purple tablecloths and also our our Lenten candle on the table. One of the traditionally penitential seasons of the church calendar where we uh, would become all very introspective and focus on the frailty and finitude of human nature, the potential that we all have towards sin and our need of repentance and redemption. And those are really good themes, they're good traditional themes, and they are important to think about. 
But sometimes, actually, what we need is not more introspection and self-examination. Sometimes we perhaps need a little bit of encouragement. Something perhaps that's a bit more practical, a bit more down-to-earth, a bit less vague and esoteric. And as I looked through the lectionary readings for Lent this year, I was really struck by the fact that the majority of the Old Testament passages are linked directly or indirectly with covenants or promises made between God and humanity. And that seemed a little bit more promising. No good, is it? I can't do puns on you. You're all too literal. That seemed a bit more promising as an avenue of exploration, but it does have its own challenges. To try and look at some of the promises, some of the covenants that were made between God and different people or different groups of people, and to think what they might have to say to us about our own lives in the here and now. And today we begin with the Noah Covenant, which comes right at the end of the flood story and the very dramatic and symbolic appearance of the rainbow. Now, when I was at the coffee club on Wednesday, I discovered that some people have been watching a documentary quite recently that covers quite a lot of the stuff that I want to say by way of introduction. So that just passed me by completely. I didn't know there'd been a documentary about the flood story going on recently, but there you go. I think it's still worth um, saying what I've planned to say, and those who saw the documentary can tell me if I've got it wrong, so that'll be okay. The historicity of the Great Flood is one of the most hotly debated topics in relation to the first part of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Did it happen? Did it really happen? And if it did, well, how far did it extend? Was it the whole earth, or was it just Mesopotamia, or what was it? And so on and so forth. And people expend a lot of energy on that. Many of you, I'm sure, know that the Genesis story has very strong similarities with the Gilgamesh epic, a Babylonian story of equal antiquity, and that some people actually think was borrowed and reinterpreted by the ancient Hebrews. Now, we can't ever prove whether that was true or not. But one thing that is true is that just about every nation, every culture, every people group in the world tells stories of great floods, and they go back way into history. I found a website um, this week which had hundreds of them, so I chose three in the hope that we'd have people from these three countries here today, and we've got two out of three, so that's not too bad. First one is from Wales, and I have checked the pronunciation, though I will get it wrong. So this is a Welsh flood story. I can't do a full sound properly either, but there we go. Oh. The Lake of Fion burst, flooding all the lands. Duvan and Duvac escaped in a masterless ship with pairs of every sort of living creature. They landed in Prydain and repopulated the world. That's an ancient Welsh story. You can check the um, pronunciations with Jeff later, who can also tell you more about the context from that. Here's one from Lithuania. This is a much longer one. From his heavenly window, the supreme god, Pramzimas, saw nothing but war and injustice among mankind. He sent two giants, Wandu and Weas, water and wind, to destroy the earth. After 20 days and nights, little was left. Pramzimas looked to see the progress. He happened to be eating nuts at the time, and he threw down the shells. One happened to land on the peak of the tallest mountain, where some people and animals had sought refuge. 
Everybody climbed in and survived the flood floating in the nutshell. God's wrath abated. He ordered the wind and water to abate. The people dispersed except for one elderly couple who stayed where they landed. To comfort them, God sent the rainbow and advised them to jump over the bones of the earth nine times. They did so and up sprang nine other couples from which the nine Lithuanian tribes are descended. Or here's one from Nigeria. Again, I'm probably going to get the pronunciations wrong so somebody can correct me afterwards. A god, Ifa, tired of living on earth and went to dwell in the firmament with Obatala. Without his assistance, mankind couldn't interpret the desires of the god and one god, Olokan, in a fit of rage, destroyed nearly everybody in a great flood. So African stories, British Isles stories, Eastern European stories, there are Aboriginal and Maori stories. Every culture in the world has its own flood stories. And some of them, frankly, are just plain weird. But there is something about these stories that have arisen in different places, and yet they have a lot of similarities, don't they? However improbable they are, however many mythic elements we identify with them, like people floating around in a giant nutshell, it does seem that they emerged from some distant catastrophic event. And whilst we may never prove whether or not there was a single great flood, there is archaeological evidence at various places to support the evidence of there being severe and widespread flooding in prehistoric times. Some say at the end of the Second Ice Age. Some say it was the flood that destroyed the dinosaurs. We may never prove any of that either. But the idea of floods are part of our history as human beings. And like so much of the biblical narrative, when we come to look at the flood story, either a preoccupation with historicity, did it really happen, or an equally ruthless attempt to demythologize it, oh, well, it's only a story, lead us into a blind alley. The story of Noah isn't, and it doesn't profess to be, a scientific historical account. It's a story. It's a story designed to tell us something about humanity, something about God, and about the relationship between God and the whole of creation. Like most of the other flood stories, the biblical flood story is predicated on human sinfulness. Sinfulness that incurs God's wrath, and only a few people are saved, along with a representative selection of animals. Now, one way we could read that story, setting aside any supernatural or mythic aspects, is simply this. The actions and attitudes of humanity, of people, have implications for the whole of earthly creation. I can't quite see that a prehistoric flood would have been caused by global warming due to greenhouse gases because that just wasn't how things were in those days. They didn't burn fossil fuels in the way we do. But there is surely a message that's important for us to hear that human actions can and do have unintended consequences that impact the whole earth, the whole of creation. Well, you knew that. You didn't need to come to church on a Sunday to be told that. That's kind of 
pretty basic, obvious stuff. But we know also that it's not easy, is it? There's not black and white answers that cause and effect can't always be so readily identified. For example, destroying rainforests to raise beef cattle has one set of negative consequences. And destroying ancient pasture land, ploughing it up to grow grain, has another set of negative unintentioned consequences. Sometimes the best choice we can make is a lesser of two or a lesser of several evils. And sometimes it isn't quite so clear, is it? Which is more or less evil? Which is the better or the worst decision to make? Maybe the first purpose of the Noah story is to remind us of our place within creation. Entrusted by God to take charge of life on earth. And that that has huge responsibilities for all of us. Every single one of us. The awareness we have of the way our actions and attitudes impact the rest of creation, whether directly or indirectly, has to affect the choices we make and the decisions we take. Whether it's environmental considerations, ethical policies, whatever it is, you know what they are as well as I do. But it is a reminder that our faith, our understanding, our belief that God entrusted creation to us has to affect the way we live. So after the flood, after the ark has landed, a new lot of human and animal life is dispersed. And then comes the covenant, the promise from God. And it's a promise that has several clauses, and it's a promise that's sealed with the rainbow, that wonderful symbol. This is the first time in the Bible that humans are given permission to eat meat. And there is only one restriction on that, that they are not to eat the lifeblood. Now, we need to be careful, because this is not a thou shalt eat meat. It is a thou may eat meat. So it's an option alongside the previous vegetarian lifestyle that scripture suggests. And it's possible, if we sort of step back from the story, that this is around a time when people started to hunt. People started to kill and eat meat for themselves. And so they were working out how does this fit within God's understanding. And certainly for the ancients, they would have needed divine sanction for something of a change in their way of behaving. And it's not something we tend to think about in the West. But whilst meat-eating is permitted, due respect for life is demanded. The prohibition on blood, the carrier of life, reflects an implicit respect for all animal life. Now the truth is, Christians and people of other faiths will come to all kinds of views on whether we should or should not eat meat. And you can, from the Bible, make an argument to be a vegan, to be a vegetarian, or to eat meat. And in fact, to eat black pudding as well, if you want to stretch it that far. I think there is something more fundamental here in this covenant. Because God reminds us that we have responsibility for all life on earth. All life. One of the effects of supermarkets and industrialization is that mostly 
We don't make much connection between what we eat and, and where it comes from. You don't think about the fact that those lamb chops in a plastic tray in the supermarket were once a nice fluffy lamb gambling on the hills. Or we don't make a connection between clucking hens and the box of eggs that we pick up to go and do our baking. Again, there's no easy answers. But questions about animal welfare, farming practice, animal experimentation and so on surely have to be something we reflect about, something we think about. God says, value all animal life. Be aware of the choices you make and the implications they have. And when you choose what you're going to eat, whether it's vegetarian, vegan, meat, fish, whatever it is, treat it with respect. There is, um, I saw a a documentary once about um, some people who are hunting in Scandinavia. And there is a practice to this day in Scandinavia that if you shoot a deer... You give it kind of last rites. So as the deer lies on the ground, they connect some bracken or some grass and symbolically feed the deer one last meal. A recognition that this is a life taken, a life that has worth. And I think that's, that's a good kind of thing to keep in our mind. Not that we go all mushy and slushy about things, but we recognise all life has worth, all life matters. And the choices we make should be driven by that sense of responsibility. And then God commissions the people to go and repopulate the earth and they're sent off on their way. But God gives them a visible sign. A rainbow. Was this the first rainbow ever seen on the earth? I don't know. There's no way we can know. But what we do know is that just as there are all sorts of flood stories around the world, so rainbows have a symbolic and often mystical significance in all cultures. I I did a bit of research about rainbow legends as well. So there's the rainbow bridge concept, the idea of the rainbow as a bridge between earth and heaven. And of course, nowadays, people talk about pets going over the rainbow bridge when they die. And, and that kind of that sort of rainbow bridge concept is in Norse, Japanese, and Maori legends. There is an interesting Bulgarian legend that says if you walk under a rainbow, it'll change your gender. And there is an Irish le- legend, of course, about the crock of gold at the end of the rainbow. If you can get to the end of that rainbow, you will find your heart's desire. There are a few legends that see the rainbow as malevolent, as some kind of serpent that destroys, but generally it's seen positive. And in flood stories, wherever they come from, the rainbow's a sign of hope, a promise of a restored and renewed world order, that even when the storm clouds gather, as they will, even when the rains come, there is a sign of hope, a reminder of God's promise to the whole of creation. Hope in adversity, a sign that reminds us that there is something more, that this isn't the end. That's really, really powerful. And it's small wonder then that if that this symbol of hope has been adopted by all sorts of organizations and group, groups around the world. 
Desmond Tutu, the anti-apartheid campaigner, spoke of South Africans as the rainbow people of God. The idea of rainbow skin tones, rainbow personalities, and that yet, despite that, there should be unity. Diversity, but unity. That skin colour and tribe and language and class, they're not the be-all and end-all. They, of course, have their distinctives, but they are valued within a reconciled whole. The rainbow is one, though it is many colours. The gay pride movement and other similar groups choose variants on the rainbow as an expression of diversity and inclusivity, as well as the truth that human sexuality is a concept that you can't neatly define in a kind of binary system. Actually, it is a spectrum. And it's not always quite easy to say where one bit finishes and another bit ends. Environmental groups, people like Greenpeace, use the rainbow as a sign of hope, harking back to those hope, the hope in the, the flood stories. And the cooperative movement has at various times used rainbows as a sign about unity, about hope, and about interdependence. One of the things that strikes me about this rainbow symbol is it can go across all those barriers. Barriers of race, gender, sexuality, politics, nationhood, religion. And people find in its colours, in its shapes, something wonderful. They find promise. They find hope. They find encouragement. At one level... Rainbow's nothing special. It's just diffraction of light through raindrops. It's O-grade physics. And yet, it becomes a universal symbol of hope. That's pretty impressive. It would be disingenuous of me not to say that some Christians get a little uncomfortable when other groups adopt the rainbow, as if somehow Christians have copyright on the, radi- on the rainbow, which is a shame because it was actually a Jewish symbol long before it was ours. But in doing so, is it sort of missing the point? That's not why God gave us the rainbow and said, that's for you, my Christian people. The rainbow is a symbol of hope for all creation. And the rainbow is God's reminder to God's self of the promise. That's what it said. I'm putting this in the sky so that I will remember God promises Noah and the whole of creation at a time when everything is very vulnerable and fragile. God says, and I will never go back on this promise. I will never give up. I will never ever get so angry that I decide to destroy everything. This is God's promise that love is stronger than judgment. This is God demonstrating diversity in unity. This is God giving us a gift so that when the storms come, because they will, literally or metaphorically, God is there and there is a brighter future ahead. The covenant that God made with Noah is a covenant with each of every one of us. And it does give us huge responsibility for our life choices especially in relation to the rest of creation. The way we treat and relate to animals, to plants and trees and other vegetable things, and mineral, 
to the seas, the oceans, the rocks, what we mine, whatever it is. The promise of God, that sign of the rainbow, when we glimpse it, whenever we choose to adopt it, is a sign for us too. God's redemption of creation. God's promise of the new creation as glimpsed in the book of Revelation. This runs right through the whole of human history. And God's promise then is just as true for us today. God is with us all. Whatever our circumstances, God gives us the rainbow to trace through the rain of our own life struggles, knowing that in the end, all will be well. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the great truths that lie behind the creation stories and for the affirmation that you saw what you had made and it was good. Through our modern media, alongside much that is good and beautiful in the created world, we see evil come threateningly close to us. And we need to look for the beauty of the rainbow to give us renewed confidence that you will only what is good. So we pray for all who see no rainbow of hope in the world and in society around them. For those whose lives seem blighted by violence or poverty or injustice. Some are Christians who know your word and cling to your promises in spite of the reality of their experiences of war or hunger or oppression. But the story of Noah tells us that you will the good of all your creation, human and animal, so that black and white, rich and poor, Jew and Muslim, and atheist too, may see the rainbow when there is rain around, though not all are able to value it as a symbol of hope. We thank you for the courage of all who go to distant places to be hope to the needy, to Africans threatened by Ebola, or to bring advice and encouragement in lands where there is scant justice or poor education, or to watch over children or bring medical help to women in childbirth, or to face the uncertainties and cruelty of war zones and carry a beacon of hope, a reminder of your promises. We pray for a new vision for those who put their hope in violence in Ukraine or Libya, Iraq and Syria. For Coptic Christians who fear further violence in Egypt. 
for Jews fearing anti-Semitism in countries like France or Denmark, for Palestinians who fear the armed violence of Israelis. We pray for those who flee from places of danger and find themselves in greater danger at sea and facing life as refugees in unknown lands. We thank you for the freedoms we enjoy in this land and pray that we may use our freedom responsibly to avoid giving offence to others holding different views. We pray for young people in our own and other countries who are depressed, perhaps because they are unemployed or abused and see no prospect of leading a satisfying life, no rainbow of hope. So we praise you, gracious God, for the covenant relationship you offer us and pray that we ourselves may be channels of hope to those who see no rainbow. We remember before you those of this congregation who are in or due to go into care homes like Jean Delmore and Gwyneth White and others who are feeling the burden of their years or of personal anxiety. These are prayers we offer in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God of all creation, as we leave here, knowing how blessed we really are, help us to be a blessing to others and to the whole of creation as we live out the hope expressed by the rainbow today and every day. Thank you.